we're dealing with a major power broker in Ottawa. The biggest power broker there is in Canada is not the public, it's the bureaucracy. I am a husband, a father, a lawyer, a Christian, and a proud Canadian. I started this series because it was clear that our nation needs truth. Not just another biased narrative, but real information of substance. We need access to facts and the freedom to think for ourselves. I'm Leighton Gray, and this is Gray Matter. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Gray Matter. I think you're going to find this is a very intriguing show. Most people love a, a good whistleblower story, and this is one that uh, I think very few people have heard about. I know that I hadn't. And uh, we have a man named Gordon Knight on today who is going to spill all the tea. But first, a few, by way of preamble, introduction, a few questions. Um, who decides which products can be sold in the United States? The government of Canada, that's who. Does that surprise you? It certainly surprised me. Uh, but uh, you can't be blamed for not knowing. Canada has been suppressing news on all of this, even banning an explosive book exposing the whole sordid tale. More on that in a minute. The U.S. government actually outsourced its control of product safety and importation to another government in a foreign country, in this case, Canada. That's bad enough, but it gets worse when you see what kind of a job they're doing of it. In fact, no job at all. So our guest today is a man named Gordon Knight. Uh, Mr. Knight, thank you very much for being part of, of Grey Matter today. It's really great to have you on the program. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here, ladies and gentlemen in Texas right now, but I understand you're based in Canada still, and that's fantastic. My heart is still with you folks, but as a result of all these issues that we're going to discuss today, I'm actually exiled into the United States myself. Yes, and uh, I'm really excited to get into that and tell the whole story and talk more about Deep Six Diaries, which uh, I just finished reading last week. It's this, the true story of one little guy trying to defend himself, his business, and his elderly father from bullying bureaucrats and government criminality. So um, before we dive into that, what we uh, always do here uh, is um, frame the discussion with a few opening aphorisms. The first of these is from another whistleblower, a famous one named Julian Assange. He once wrote, every time we witness an injustice and do not act, we train our character to be passive in its presence and thereby eventually lose all ability to defend ourselves and those we love. Second one, from another famous whistleblower, Edward Snowden, who wrote, when exposing a crime is treated as committing a crime, you are being ruled by criminals. And finally, from uh, not a whistleblower, but somebody who did a lot of important writing, especially in the constitutional vein, uh, Thomas Jefferson, who wrote that all tyranny needs to gain a foothold is for people of good conscience to remain silent. So with that, we have Gordon Knight on the program. Gordon, I wonder if you could, before you dive into the book and tell us about it, I wonder if you wouldn't mind telling us a little bit about your, your background and how you sort of got pulled into this uh, vortex of intrigue. Well, I, it wasn't planned, I can tell you, Leighton. My background is, uh, well, my back up a second. My company that sort of started all this thing is a publishing company. We're a very small outfit. Uh, small, usually I am the employee. That's the kind of size we're talking about. We publish electrical guidebooks, the sort of thing that you'd uh, buy at Home Depot or Home Hardware in Canada. And we only publish in the Canadian market. And lately we've been doing that for about half a century. So we're very well established. 
My father started that business, and be frank with you, I had no interest in the business growing up. I wasn't going to do this, but as my father hit 80, he wanted a retirement, and being a trying to be a good son, at least, I, I, I would step in and take it over. And within about a year of my taking that over, that's when this whole thing that we're going to be discussing sort of started to roll out. So what actually happened here, Leighton, is that uh, as a guy with, with no background in electrical and no background in publishing when I started all of this, I just happened to be very well aligned for the battle that came through this electrical publications business. The Civil Service of Canada um, published their own electrical guidebooks, and they would very much like to have my guidebooks disappear so they could have a monopoly. And so they came, approached me roughly a year after I took over the business and said, it's sort of a mob mentality, you know, nice little business you have there. Boy, it'd be a shame if anything were to happen to it. <laughs> you pay us a little bit of money, we will license you to continue to exist. Sounds like good fellas. It does. It's, it's like a Hollywood script or something. And uh, of course, one of the challenges I faced, Leighton, was that um, I had an elderly father, but they were threatening as well. Oh, and, my goodness. I mean, on principle, you want to say, pound sand, we're not doing this. Right. But my father couldn't recover from that sort of thing. And they were trying to hit him up for over a million dollars. And he's not a wealthy man. He simply couldn't afford that. And so I, I was, I can tell you, I was actually willing to pay them the protection money, not because it was the right thing to do, but because, uh, you know, it's the government. So you sort of have to make some allowances, let's say. Right. Yeah. The challenge, Leighton, was that what they were demanding for a royalty payment was actually greater than the retail price of the book. So they were demanding a royalty that was mathematically impossible to pay, even if I desired to do so. So I had to, I had to say, I, I'm sorry, I simply cannot do that. And immediately after I'd refused, that's when all the litigations began. And thus began a, what is now a 12-year battle with waves of litigations. You've heard the word lawfare before. Yes. What I've been dealing with. They then used regulatory warfare as well, trying to blacklist my publications, trying to seize my assets. They started um, making, let's say, arranged rulings in court. So there's, there's a number of things that they started to compound. Every time we win something, they would escalate it using the power of government. That's my background on this issue, drawn into something that I certainly didn't plan, but I just happened to be pretty well aligned for so, Gordon, I understand that uh, the book was finally re released last year, uh, but that it took about 11 years to actually get it to print and released uh, because it was being it was being so heavily suppressed. Why? Why is your book, The Deep Six Diaries, being so why is it being so heavily suppressed? And, and what is the what is the big secret that uh, that that they want to suppress that they don't want to come out? Well, you said big secret in, in the singular. I, I'd say it's actually more of a plural. Uh, there are several okay. issues that are all sort of joined together here. What's happening in Canada, Leighton, is that the, the Canadian civil service is operating like a sort of cartel. When I mentioned protection payments, that's just one of their lines of business. Their lines of business are mostly illegitimate. So you sort of hinted earlier in your opening that they were doing testing in the U.S. and that it wasn't really happening that's another line of business. So it's certification fraud. People don't know this, but the Canadian Civil Service is actually the most long, uh, the longest term counterfeiter in Canadian history. They ran a counterfeiting operation for eight years until 2010, when they were finally caught, ironically, by the CBC. The Canadian, so, the Canadian Civil Service is counterfeiting. Yes, they were selling fake safety certifications to U.S. manufacturers for products that did not meet Canadian standard and could not be used. Right. In the 
Yeah, I read about that in the book, right. They were bankrupting companies on both sides of the border, but because they're civil servants, Leighton, they couldn't be prosecuted. In practical terms, they were untouchable. So you've got problems upon problems, and this book, Deep Six Diaries, walks you through each of them in order, essentially how I discovered them in the order in which I discovered them with all of the evidences there. That makes it dangerous for those people who were involved in that. As right. well, the Deep Six Diaries book, when it was released, uh, was released concurrent with a website, deepsixdiaries.com, mm -hmm. which had an evidence tab on it. And that evidence tab contains all the evidences referenced in the book. There's 82,000 pages of documentation there. And the idea, Leighton, was so that People reading this book thinking that this, this sounds surreal. It couldn't possibly be true. That's but what I was thinking. <laughs> they can go online and look up what's referenced in the book and see it in original and judge for themselves. That's the idea. Right. When you try to throw sunlight on somebody that desperately needs things done in darkness, they're going to react poorly. And that's why they were trying to shut down these websites. They did see uh, seize one of my websites prior to Deep Six Diaries to shut down that information. They did seize uh, account information from me. They, so, they seized dollars from me. They On and on and on. Anything they could do to prevent that book from getting out. And right now, Leighton, as you probably know from you know our, our brief that we sent you, the book is actually banned right now. So you are in possession of one of the rarest books in America, my friend. It, wow. it is not available right now because of the government of Canada. Incredible. So part of the story, um, Gordon, is that the Canadian government agency doing the testing and certifying outfit called CSA Group, and and uh, many people out there will see that the seal on their on the kids' hockey helmets uh, isn't doing much much testing or certifying, and instead of doing the work, uh, they've been caught faking and testing these certifications, and then selling counterfeits to enable imports into the U.S. And you say we know this as we've heard from a long stream of whistleblowers, of civil service insiders sending us evidence. And an Ohio court, an Ohio court, even ruled in 2011 that CSA is guilty of conspiracy to defraud the public. Yes, with the it, this is this is tough stuff, but you never know it. I mean, the court did rule that way. The, again, the ruling is one of those items on our evidence tab that people can look at and verify because it's really strong language the court was using, and yet we never hear about this stuff. You know, the, the, you mentioned whistleblowers, Layton. The fact is that the civil service is badly compromised, but not every civil servant is a crook. We need to remember that. Right, of there course. People in there. And we heard from quite a few good and decent people. Layton, I, I actually don't know as I sit here and talk to you right now the number of whistleblowers we have, but it's it, over 11 years. It's, it's a lot of people. And I would have meetings with them. <laughs> it sounds like a Hollywood script again, but I'd go to drive to the edge of town in a darkened area and have a meeting with them in a divey restaurant because they didn't want to be caught talking to me they'd send me literal brown envelopes stuffed with government documents i mean this is the sort of thing that was happening regularly over that period so when i say that they've been caught falsifying documents falsifying safety certifications falsifying import documents that sort of thing we have the evidence to back it we've heard from the people that were forced to sign this stuff and some of it Leighton, is it isn't just a matter of I mean, look, it's safety testing. So it's it's reprehensible to start with because you're, you're putting people at risk. Right. But we have cases of what, what the court described as permanent disfiguring injury. We have fatalities. We had one tragic story of an engineer in Ohio working for CSA who actually killed himself because he couldn't handle having to falsify these certifications all the time. This is regular. It's recurring. It's just that because we're dealing with a government with endless access to Treasury dollars, 
They have the resources to suppress each of these things through payouts, through grinding people through court processes, and of course with me banning books. But do the people on the American side know this is going on? And is there money changing hands or how does that, that that's one part of one piece that I didn't quite connect. Why, why would, why would the people on the American side go along with this stuff? There's a lot of money changing hands. This is all about money. Uh, CSA by itself. It's just the one little Canadian ministry or pardon me, one little Canadian agency of industry Canada brings in over a third of a billion dollars annually. Wow. It, so it's a lot of money. Like, yeah. Uh, so there are a number of ways they do this. It's not one single revenue source, all right? So I'll walk through them briefly. Mm-hmm. The first of these is through sale of influence over Canadian law. So if you- Oh, yeah. They're, the they're statute, selling statutes. They're selling statutes. It, it, you can, uh, actual custom laws. So you can pay them enough money, they'll draft the law to your liking, or they'll just take your text of law and they'll enact it for you. So because CSA, a lot of people don't know that CSA actually runs legislative committees in Canada. So they can draft laws directly. They can amend laws without parliamentary votes. People don't know that. So we didn't learn about that in law school, Gordon. (laughs) If you, Leighton, decided you were going to start a manufacturing company making widgets, all right, and you wanted to sell more of your widgets or thicken your profit margins or something like that, you could pay money to CSA. In trade, CSA would let you draft the laws that apply to your widgets, either suppressing a competitor's widgets by crafting the laws so that only yours are acceptable, or mandating that your widgets have to be used in every home or every room of every home in the country, or anything like that. If you pay enough money, you can buy the votes at CSA that you need to get this thing through, and that's lucrative. If we think about a typical uh, committee at CSA, and there are hundreds of them, okay, but a typical committee has about a dozen members on it and their size restricted. So if your industry laden has say 40, 40 different companies, there are only 12 seats, writing the law that governs all 40 companies. So what ends up is a bidding war and the price gets higher and higher and higher because each of those 40 companies knows that to win the market, they have to craft the laws that govern their market. So they will spend like drunken sailors to get onto CSA's committee to craft those rules. And that's how you can thicken your margins on those widgets artificially. So this, that's, has got, this has got to be illegal. Oh, it is. It is illegal. Uh, it, save that thought. I'll get back to that. <laughs> other things they're doing, all right? They're also doing safety testing. We talked about it a right. moment ago. Uh, they discovered that safety testing uh, doesn't really have to necessarily involve testing. They can just sell stickers, essentially. Those stickers you mentioned on the, on the hockey helmets, at the back of microwave ovens. So, because nobody's watching over their shoulders. They're civil servants. So, and, the thing is that the Department of Justice and the Department of Industry, this is like a, a musical chairs with civil servants every now and then. So if you know that your colleagues actually are the prosecutors, you can get away with almost anything. And they're getting away with selling stickers, not actually doing the job. That makes a ton of money because the fact is, Leighton, that manufacturers, if you're, again, if you're going to manufacturing widgets, you're an insider. You know they're not actually doing the testing. And so you know that if it doesn't quite make the safety standards applicable at law. You can pay them enough money and you'll get a bunch of stickers as opposed to actually having to change your product and improve your standard, right? So you've got a second revenue stream there. Then they're heavily involved internationally in China in particular, but they've got offices around the world. China is their biggest, uh, their thickest margins because there's no oversight at all. 
So if you're a manufacturer again, uh, Leighton, and you want to manufacture your widgets and sell them in the United States, but you know under US law, you can't do that. Well, you can send your widgets to CSA's China operation and anything will pass in China and there's no oversight. And so now you bear the CSA sticker and you can import legally into the US these products that do not meet any safety standards, but they're certified as fully compliant. All of these little scams, you add them all up and you're dealing with a multi-billion dollar operation. Incredible. You know, Gordon, one of the things, there's many things that are this, that are really troubling about this, um, but, you know, I can't help but think about or relate this to what happened with the COVID-19 vaccines, the way they were rushed to market, where the, and, and, and sort of the, the, the concordances, the common thread seems to be a complete and utter disregard and even a disdain for the well-being and the safety of the public that's being served by these government agencies. I mean, the, the CSC has a, has a very, very important job. Just take hockey helmets. Yeah. If that helmet's not safe, Someone could suffer uh, uh, a serious brain injury or even die. Uh, just, I mean, forget all the other products that go in your in your kitchen. Um, in your research, um, were you able to trace the knowledge of this stuff all the way up to the ministerial level, or does it go that high? Yes, it does, but um, it, it does not just uh, through one ministry. I mentioned the musical chairs a moment ago with departments. All right. Right. The fact is, at the high end of the civil service, so the AD, assistant deputy minister or ADM, that kind of level, everybody knows it. It's an open secret. And wow. the reason why is that most ADMs, I'm generalizing, okay, but most ADMs are lifers. Um, the people even that I was dealing with in negotiations on this issue over the last 12 years uh, have been lifers as well. That is, right out of college, they get their internship somewhere in the bowels of the civil service, and then they stay there for the balance of their years. And that means they go from department to department to department, and they're guaranteed to float sometime at CSA. And by the way, one of the reasons they do that is that civil servants tend to make, on average, about 10% lower than industry average for a comparable job in the real world. Okay. But CSA patterns itself as a private company, and they can pay whatever they want, and they can send people on golfing junkets, and they live like princes. And so everybody in the civil service wants to float through CSA at least once in their careers to live the high life, at taxpayer expense without any oversight. So there's been enough of them through there that there is this common knowledge that everybody knows CSA is part of government. And I'll tell you, ladies, when the cameras are off and you talk to members of parliament or even senators, we talk to our share of them, they know that too, that they're blunt about it. CSA is a government agency masquerading as a private company. They know it, but what do they do about it? It's the body of the civil service that's rallying to protect themselves. So is that where the money is going? The money is actually going to the civil servants? Yes. Oh, wow. Incredible. It Look, it, under mandate, CSA was set up by actually by the British Empire, not the Canadian government, during the First World War. It was patriated in 1919. All right. When it got here, it got a Canadian uh, charter equivalent to the British charter they started with. And under that charter, CSA is a volunteer organization, like a think of it like a rotary club. Right. That's what it's supposed to be. Right. It had all of four or five full-time people, and they were all volunteering their time on like maybe a month on, month off, that kind of thing. It was it was very straightforward. The CEO right now makes over a half a million dollars a year. So we've got an entity now that has a mandate for maybe five full-time staff that employs over 2,000. It is an entirely domestic mandate just to, just to generate electrical and electrical engineering regulation. That's all they're supposed to be doing. 
yet they're operating on, what, three different continents with, what, 40 different offices around the world. So they've metastasized into this enormous bureaucracy, and there's money in the bureaucracy. The bigger it gets, the more money each manager gets, the more trips they get on aircraft. Let me give you an idea here. You realize that CSA, in the last year for which we have data, about four years ago, was spending over $90,000 per business day on travel. 90 a day? $90,000 per day on travel. Now, if you do your math on that, Leighton, I mean, if you're spending that much money million a month. Yeah. on all the airfares. So <laughs> it's, it's even bigger than you think it is. So yes, that's where the dollars go. And the reason they were targeting me, incidentally, was because they were short of cash. And oh. Odd, okay. But well, what, was, you, what was the royalty then that they were trying to extort from you? They started targeting, uh, well, it, it's a book called Industrial and Commercial. So it's a very right. long, about 1100 page book for engineers, really. Right. Very, very boutique, kind of very in-depth engineering document. It, at that time, the price was $127 per book retail. They demanded a royalty of $133 per book. So that's what I meant by mathematically impossible. Now, I can tell you, Leighton, that after that meeting, I had a number of negotiations with the then president of standards at CSA, a lady named Bonnie Rose, who's no longer there anymore. And, and just as an aside, I actually have regard for her. She is unusual among civil servants in that she's just a walking brain, you know, the kind. That yep. She wasn't a good fit as a civil servant bureaucrat, and she didn't last very long. But in those negotiations, she gave me information, let's say, and, and told me in such a way as to believe it that the people I was negotiating with that were demanding this mathematically impossible royalty actually believed that it was a reasonable demand. Because in their universe, all you have to do to make the royalty is triple your prices. They weren't connecting with the reality of business that if I triple my prices overnight, I'm out of business overnight. Right. See, most of these civil servants are lifers. They've never had to make payroll. They've never brought a product to market. They genuinely didn't know that what they were asking was impossible. Wow. And uh, at, at a certain point, um, you were targeted. In fact, uh, the Canadian government advised Visa, Amex, and other credit card companies that your company was engaged in money laundering or finance fraud. Do uh, you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. I'd be delighted. We had uh, That was right after the release of Deep Six Diaries, the book we talked about a moment ago. Right. They were trying very hard to find a way to shut that down. And Leighton, I was already in the U.S. at that point. So shutting down a book in the U.S. is, is much more difficult. You can't, right. the community has more options to just suppress it. Right. Uh, and so the first thing they did was they targeted Amazon, which was our sales portal. And they told Amazon that the book was a counterfeit. Now, like, it has ironic. Like, <laughs> on the cover. It, it cannot be a counterfeit. But this is what they said. And again, Amazon, I can't fault Amazon for this because it's the Canadian government that's calling them. It's a G7 country, right? It's got right. credit. And Amazon has warehouses in Canada, a lot of business in Canada, a lot of exposure. And so the Canadian government leaned on them, essentially. Right. And so even though in my talks with Amazon, they acknowledge there's nothing remotely counterfeit about a book that I wrote, but they aren't willing to relist it on their site. So it was pulled off Amazon. So that's the first effort to ban it. Uh, I was also selling the book on my own website, deepsixdiaries.com. And because I, we've had a merchant account for years, we sell books, that's what we do. And that's where they, the Canadian government contacted Visa, Amex, all the, the majors. And they accused us at that point of money laundering. 
because they knew that the moment you say money laundering to the credit card of the financial institutions, they, they their head sort of explodes a little bit yes. and they shut you down instantly. Yeah. And that's what they did. We lost our ability to process credit card transactions so that we could sell nothing, none of our electrical books, not Deep Six Diaries. It just overnight, it was just shut off. Like even now? Even now. So wow. Deep Six Diaries, I cannot, I mentioned it's a banned book and it, that's why I can't, I haven't got around that one yet. So look, that lasted for, I'm going to memory, but a little over a week and change. All right. Right. Then uh, I was talking to my legal counsel about it because we've got to get our sales back on and that takes a legal filing and that takes money. And of course, my opponents knew that. And so you had, you had money seized, right? Yes, we did. Layton. <laughs> uh, out of my U.S. account, my U.S. corporate account, uh, they seized $50,000 from me as punishment for money laundering. Now, the seizures, I mean, we didn't even find out about the seizures. I just looked at the account one day and found that it was missing money. So there was no hearing, no trial, no evidence presented. There's no opportunity to defend yourself, and there's no appeals process. This is, this is not even remotely what we would call justice. And yet, here we are. And of course, that I'm a small business, so 50 grand, that pretty much wiped me out in terms of money. I couldn't afford the litigation to clear my name with Visa, MasterCard, Amex. So that's how you get away with it if you're a civil servant. You just use the power of government to suppress your opponent. And if you do it well, there's nothing that you can that an opponent can do about that. These uh, seizures of funds are becoming far too commonplace in our country, aren't they? They are. And it's it's so much reflective of what uh, what you know all the truckers went through and all the supporters. I actually have a friend of mine uh, who had her account seized as a result of donating $20 to the truckers. So I, I you know, I'm going through this as well. I'm certainly not the only one. I'm not trying to pedestal myself, but it really has got to, it's got to be something we're going to be dealing with because right now we've got a bit of a victim machine on these seizures. Right. So um, let's talk a little bit about why you're in Texas. I understand there's actually a warrant out for your arrest in Canada. How did that come about? How was there a warrant out for your arrest? You don't strike me as a criminal, Gordon. Thank you. That's, that's, that's very reassuring. Um, and I don't think I am. I mean, before all this stuff that we're talking about started occurring, before they targeted me, I'd never been seen the inside of a courtroom. I mean, I, I just, it, a little bit like surgeons, you know, we like to put them on a pedestal. We like to think of them as, as infallible. We know they're not, but we like to think of them as such. And I just assumed that if I'd done nothing wrong, if I'd obeyed the law, I have nothing to fear from a court process. And in hindsight, that was a bit naive, but I had no experience in it. Right. When they hit, did the royalty uh, demands and the protection payment demands, I fought that in court. And to much to their annoyance, uh, I, I wasn't destroyed by it. They were trying to wipe me out financially. So they launched eight litigations against me, seven duplicates, which, by the way, is also illegal. I think you all, know that. all at the same time. Uh, I was running, no, not at the same time. We had six of them running concurrently, but eight in total. Wow. Uh, so this is a huge legal expense. I was learning a lot about the law, I can tell you, trying to do as much work as I could to hold down my legal expenses. And they were getting increasingly frustrated that I wasn't going out of business fast enough. And as the frustration grew, the lengths they would take to ensure their way became more overt. And that's what kind of led into this. So specifically, they were demanding uh, that my books pay, or I should be paying a royalty to them for quoting or referring to the rule of law. Now, uh, without, I don't want to get into the weeds here too much, but um, in Alberta, where I was based, we have Alberta Queen or King's Printer copyright now, I guess. Right. Which applies to all legislation that is passed and regulation in the province of Alberta. Right. I'm paraphrasing, but it basically says anyone 
can reference, quote from, or excerpt uh, Alberta legislation and regulation without charge and without permission provided you attribute it as copyright Queen's printer or King's printer. Right. We've been doing it for years. So we were fully compliant. Mm -hmm. In order to get a court to rule in their favor, the court had to come to the conclusion that what that law says it means is the opposite of what it really means. Now, no court would genuinely, an open, true court would not do that. And so they had to arrange for a, a ruling by selecting a judge very carefully. Now, in Canada, the federal court system is run by what's called the Court Administration Service. And right. there's lobbying takes place there. I, it's not supposed to happen, but it does. And the judge that was selected uh, to adjudicate between myself and CSA was an employee of CSA. And so we should not be surprised when that judge reached a verdict in favor of his own employer. And so it, it was a very dirty ruling. We then appealed that all the way to the Supreme Court and, and we lost all the way up. So the ruling on private law, otherwise known as Manson's law, is now the law of the land, it's not appealable. In this context, I shifted my operations into the United States. That's part of the reason I got down here. I shifted the company down here. And right at the time that the CSA figured out I wasn't going out of business fast enough and they couldn't shut me down through Manson's law because I'm now based in the United States, they started a criminal contempt proceeding against me. Now, look, I'm going to unpack this one. I'm not going to waste a ton of time. <laughs> you need to get some back. No, you take all the time you need because I, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to figure out how this, how this all is all unfolding. Well, Leighton, as, as you know with your background, uh, when you've got complicated litigations, multiple lawsuits happening sort of layered on top of each other, often through, through no malevolence at all, you have to wait for other rulings and other cases before you can proceed on the one that's in front of you. Right. In order to do that, you enter into what are called stay agreements. That is the parties mutually agree to just maintain the status quo until yeah. we get the ruling we're waiting for. This is normal. Right. We call them standstills. Right. And the, right. they're they're common. And we had quite a few of them over those eight litigations in 11 years. One of those uh, was entered into at the request of a judge of the federal court. The, the court actually requested that we do a stay agreement. And we did. And that's where the problem began. You see, uh, their legal counsel uh, was actually very good. I say that grudgingly because I'd like to smite him, but he was <laughs> good in many ways. But, you know, negotiation just wasn't his strong suit. And so when we negotiated the stay agreement, the, only, the, the, the particulars for um, uh, the, what's called the horizon on it, so the end of the thing, uh, only required that at the end of the term of the state agreement, all we had to do was advise the opposing side of our intentions to appeal a particular ruling. That's all we had to do. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, the, the, the status quo has remained. Now, that was a huge fumble on their part because it required no stoppage on our part. It was, it was easy. And at the time, I can tell you that myself and my legal counsel were marveling that we were able to get off with that kind of an agreement, but we did. So when the time came um, and uh, we advised them in compliance with the stay agreement, we fulfilled our requirements before the court, uh, they were much frustrated that this did not result in the ending of our publication, because that's what the council had told CSA was going to be the result, and it wasn't the result. So naturally, they filed a criminal contempt charge against me, saying that I should have complied with what they intended to place inside the state agreement rather than what was actually written there. And that was very worrying because with the criminal contempt ruling, you're now looking at about five years incarceration. Right, yeah. This coincided later with, on some of these other cases, uh, they were making a number of moves that were uh, extra legal, let's say. They were holding hearings without my uh, participation. They were denying me the right to defend myself. They were unilaterally editing my filings. Uh, in one memorable instance, 
the court ordered that the defense, that's me, file with the plaintiff and the plaintiff would have their counsel file with the court on my behalf. This is like something out of Zimbabwe and yet here we are. And so, you know, writing's on the wall here. I, I'm not going to get a fair shake. Right. And it wasn't healthy to remain in the country. And so I, I did, I fled the country uh, about just under three years ago, ended up in Texas. And shortly after I arrived here, we did have the criminal contempt hearing. It was every bit as surreal as I was expecting it to be. I was found guilty of, uh, I don't know how you put this, I complied with the stay agreement, but they ruled that what it said it meant was the opposite of what it really meant. Therefore, I was in breach of it. And they did issue a sentence of five years less a day incarceration. But here's the fun bit. In her ruling, the judge reserved for herself the right to increase my incarceration open-endedly after I had been jailed. So it is effectively a life sentence in prison. So I look at that and think, you know, my goodness, I fled the country at the right time. Uh, because if I was in Canada right now, I would have real problems indeed. So you're a fugitive from, from I guess, quote unquote, justice. Um, I want to come back to this Manson's law. Yeah. So um, here, basically, they passed Manson's law in Canada, and this makes legislation itself the private property of whoever drafted it, and they've effectively legalized the bribing of civil servants. Now, um, is this, to your knowledge, do you know, is this still going on? <laughs> uh, yes, those are actually two cases, by the way. Let's, let's deal with them in order. The Manson's law... Uh, business that was from 2015 2016 and that is that was appealed to the supreme court and upheld all along the way so right now it's no longer litigable the only way to upend manson's law is through legislation and mm. uh, the government has no interest in doing that right uh, this is profiting the civil service immensely so yes it is ongoing right now almost all legislation in the country is drafted by the civil service or alternately at their um, request so the civil service then owns those laws for which they have copyright assignment and that's pretty much everything. So right now, CSA and other civil servants that have the same uh, benefits are invoicing the governments of Canada for each use of their laws. So every time the law is enforced, every time the law is quoted from, every time the law is referenced, they get a check. It, it gets it gets so bad. I can tell you there's a specific uh, contract that I, I'll not drop the name of for obvious reasons contacted us with a complaint. And this contract was a fairly large operation in Saskatchewan that uh, was being hit up by CSA for protection money again. This is before Manson's Law, where they were demanding, uh, CSA was demanding of them a theater rate. That is on the safety posters that contractors must place at the job site. There's all the safety information relevant to that job site. CSA was demanding that this contractor pay them a theater rate, calculate the number of eyeballs that are gonna look at the poster multiplied by a rate equals the amount the contractor owes to CSA because CSA drafted certain of those laws. That kind of thing was pre-Manson's law and they were pushing back, but no contractor can, can push back now because Manson's law is in place. So you've got a sort of open-ended shakedowns of corporations, governments, municipalities, any kind of influence that references or enforces the rule of law is now paying money to the civil servants who drafted it. So, so the in effect, the net effect is that Canadian taxpayers have to rent their own laws. That's correct. If you if you think of it like a, a speed law, like speed signs on the highway, right? Uh, if you lobbied for a lower speed in your area and they changed the speed sign, you lobbied for it, you drafted it, you own that speed. Therefore, you can cover up the speed sign. Now, here's the perverse bit: people driving down the road have to comply with the law, but they don't have a guaranteed right to access the law. 
So you may not know what the law is, but you're still held to account for it. Every time you get a ticket for not knowing the law and not complying, the taxpayer who's also being ticketed is also paying for the royalty on the ticket. It's, it, it's like almost as though the civil servants have engineered a, a way to self-assess themselves a, a bonus every year. of how right. we're But it, it does fundamentally violate the whole concept of the rule of law, though, doesn't it? And this yeah. idea that nobody is above the law, that, that, that the law applies to, to everyone and without bias, right? That the lady justice is blind. It really offends all of the, all of the guarantees that are implicit in the rule of law, as that concept has been handed down to us all the way dating back to the Magna Carta and all the way through the whole history of English common law and Canadian law. It offends all of that tradition, as far as I can tell. Um, yeah. Why isn't anything being done about this? Is it is the answer that we simply have a very corrupt federal government? Well, in a nutshell, the answer is yes. When you think of the scale of bureaucracy in Canada now is, is actually unprecedented in our history. Uh, we have a level of government activity in the economy that has never actually been higher. We're starting to rival, uh, you know, former republics of the Soviet Union. I, I'm not making right. that up. Yes. It, it's a big deal, which means the civil servants of the country have outsized power, let's say. Mm -hmm. Now, any politician will tell you in a quiet moment that a civil servant can make or break that politician because it's the civil service that rolls out, actually executes the policies that are decided by the politicians. So there's this implied contract between the political classes and the civil service that if the politician will just let the civil service do whatever they want, the civil service will make the politician look good. To the extent the politicians don't do what the civil service wants, the politicians are made to look bad. Stephen Harper was constantly blasted by civil servant screw-ups. Right. It wasn't it was deliberate. Right. Trudeau as much as they can because he is letting them do what they want. So trying to get politicians to go against the civil service, which is what we're dealing with here in any sort of cleanup, would mean risking their entire power structure. Their, their entire being would be at risk if they went against that hand that's keeping them in place in the first place. Wow. Uh, I think we're going to have to start calling them the uncivil service. Um, so what are you doing during your time down in Texas, Gordon? Are you still trying to get these books out and get them into the public? Is that what's happening? Yes, I am. Uh, I am working. I, 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 careful what I can disclose on this one, but I'm trying to get Deep Six unbanned, uh, let's say, so that it can be um, put out there in the public. The fact is, I'd say most of what you and I are talking about today, nobody who's listening to this has probably ever heard of it. it, it it's almost entirely beneath the radar right now, and it shouldn't be. I mean, the first step to getting a resolution here is getting public awareness of, of what we're trying to resolve. So I am working to get that book released. But there's something else I'm doing, uh, Lathan, that the, the Canadian government is, as we've talked about, operating extensively in the United States, and they're not allowed to be here for that. They've actually registered as a private company in this country, in the United States, uh, and they're supposed to be, as a government agency, confined to an embassy or a consular office, and that's not happening. So if we can re-register CSA as a government agency under what's called the Foreign Missions Act in this country, it would restrict their operations to a consular office and take away all of that business activity that's, that's feeding the bureaucratic machine those millions of dollars every year. It would be an existential threat to them. And that's what I'm working on right now. It is easier to get that done in this country than in Canada, because ultimately, while civil servants all stick together, they are a foreign outfit down here. And so right. the 
institutional biases in the court system are not sufficiently pronounced to guarantee CSA the results they're looking for. Mm -hmm. That's the direction I'm going right now. We probably have another year on that. Even when you've got all the wind in your sails, it takes a while in court. The extent of this really is is alarming. I was looking at uh, at your website and um, there's uh, almost 2,300 files directly referenced or related to statements made in the Deep Six Diaries. Um, so this is all copiously documented with a peak of complaints. Uh, you've got 907 legal files in Texas and Ontario uh, from the various duplicate litigation started by the civil service. Why are there so many lawsuits, Gordon? Well, this is the beauty of the horror of lawsuits, depending on your perspective. If you're trying to grind somebody, it's pretty easy to do. Um, you know, when we started this broadcast, started this discussion together, uh, we touched on various people victims that CSA has uh, unfortunately trod upon that do file lawsuits against CSA. And invariably, their response is, is the same. They, they grind them. And what I mean by grinding them is that they drag the process out for as, as long as they can get away with. I mean, I've had, I've had in, in my little litigation history, I've had uh, cases that took 10 years before we saw the light of a courtroom. So it, they, they deliberately grind it out. And through that process of grinding it out, they'll have innumerable motions for things. In Canada, in intellectual property law, you budget about $40,000 per motion because you got to count on being ruled against. So you got to allow for the charges on that. So they financially grind you in each litigation. Then they will duplicate the same litigation and do motions within the duplicate. So you see how this is working. They're trying to ruin you financially so the thing never, ever gets to court. Now, while they're doing all of that, they're also constricting you in other areas. In my cases, they're going after my business and constricting my ability to sell electrical books. They're blacklisting publications. They're putting out public health warnings against me. It was a it was quite the barrage. This is what they do down in the United States to certain of their victims as well. So the reason why it is so ruinously expensive is because they're practicing lawfare exceptionally well. And one last point with regard to files, Leighton. One of the tactics they will employ, which you're probably familiar with, unfortunately, in law, is they deluge a court with documents. Right. So make your case in, say, 50 pages of paper. They'll produce 5,000 pages of paper. Shock and, and awe, every, yeah. <laughs> I know. Every time you do this, it's irrelevant documents. But they've actually copied entire books, by the way, in our case. So every time they do this, it costs money for both sides. And it costs time for the court. And it just drags things on and boosts the costs up. And that's, by the way, part of the reason there are 82,000 documents on our website, because we have to post all those filings so people can check for themselves. There's a lot of stuff in there that is evidentiary, but it, it really isn't material. So you filed for political asylum in Texas. What's the status of that? How is that going? Uh, well, you probably heard in the news that there is a problem on the southern border. Uh, yes. There- Certain uh, immigrants that are coming across uh, en masse that are clogging the immigration system. And so, uh, yes, I filed for political asylum on the basis of uh, civil service corruption in Canada. Uh, But uh, honestly, we're probably five years out on that. Um, Through through nothing nefarious, it's just that with the volume, with six million people coming across the border, everything in relation to immigration law right now is absolutely logjammed. So... Uh, I'm not expecting any motion on that one for for probably quite a year or so before we actually get something going in a courtroom. Well, I'm relieved to hear that uh, you're safe and relatively sound in Texas. But what about all these other government insiders uh, who shared information with you? Uh, How safe are they? 
Well, it, it depends on them. Like we've been very, very clear. We're not releasing any of their contact information unless we have their explicit permission to do that. And I can tell you even the structuring of talking with these people, I would take that information from them that they're willing to give personally so I can function under journalistic protections rather than with the company. So if the company was nationalized in Canada, the government still wouldn't get access to who the whistleblowers were. So we're doing our best to protect them. But ultimately, we know the government has endless resources. Uh, they're not too picky about adhering to the rule of law. And so they have been trying in each of their cases against me to compel us to release our data on who the whistleblowers are, and they have not succeeded. And with everything I've got, they will not succeed, but they are working on that. So we have had a couple of whistleblowers that have gone public anyway, uh, partly because they've retired uh, or they've moved on or they've moved out of the country as best they can. Uh, there's no shortage of, of people that CSA has screwed over, as it were. Uh, so we have that. Uh, they have also, not whistleblowers so much, but people who work with me are also being targeted. So uh, we, our chief technical editor of our books, for example, was targeted at his employer, and he managed to lose his job over it. They tried to destroy his uh, teaching credentials and his teaching career. So, you know, we know there are people that are vulnerable, and we're doing our best to protect them. But remember, the adversary is the government, and, and that makes it more challenging. Yes. Um, I guess one fairly obvious question that I think many people watching this might ask, Gordon, is, you know, we, ha we have uh, this, uh, this uh, man in Parliament named Pierre Polivier, on whom many Canadians are, are, are staking their hopes uh, as an antidote to the Trudeau regime. Um, had you given any thought or made any efforts to try and make all of this data available to the official opposition. Now, one would think that they would be very interested in this. Uh, they seem to relish in exposing all the government's other many-fold scandals. Uh, was any was any efforts were any efforts made in that in that respect, or was that sort of uh, uh, an avenue that was unavailable to you? Well, the avenue was there. Um, we worked the the situation extensively. In fact, it, it, we're in year number twelve, as I mentioned, of litigation. Right. So began actually under the Conservative government. And so we immediately reached out to the Conservative government to help. But they were faced with that same conundrum we mentioned earlier about civil servants and the relationship between the political class and the bureaucratic class. They needed the civil servants to look good, or pardon me, back up. They need the civil servants to make them look good, and the mm -hmm. civil servants not on board with Stephen Harper. And so it was a problem. The last thing they wanted was to alienate even further the civil service. So we got rebuffed repeatedly. I can tell you, we had briefings, uh, direct briefings with all the parties except the Bloc Québécois, or all the parties represented in Parliament, let's say, except the Bloc Québécois. Uh, the, the Minister for a Small Business at the time that the government targeted me was um, Maxime Bernier, uh, who you'd think would stand up for this sort of thing. Yes, yes he would. But, but no, again, we're dealing with a major power broker in Ottawa. The biggest power broker there is in Canada is not the public, it's the bureaucracy. Okay. One last point on this, demographically, Canada tends to be more centre-left than centre-right. And right. Polyev, so yeah. in order for a Conservative government to get in, he has to have a split on the left and corral all the Conservatives on the right. And his challenge is that Eastern Canada, where most of the votes are, tends to be the most centre-left of the whole part of the country. True. So he has to really watch, you know, does he want to go against the power of the state 
when the state is seen as your friend by a large percentage of the electorate where he needs those right. votes. Well, so, and especially when this all dates back to a time when uh, his former boss, Mr. Harper, were, was running things. So this is actually one of those rare cases when Prime Minister Trudeau could actually authentically blame, blame Mr. Harper. He's done that many times. But at this time, it seems like he actually can do that properly, right? As you know, as far as liberals are concerned, Stephen Harper is responsible for pretty much everything that went wrong in the country and things that we didn't know about. Yeah. But like, in this instance, he actually could hit Harper's government on this. Uh, yeah. Also, Polyev himself, yes, we've been in contact with him and repeatedly, but it hasn't been reciprocated. We'll send things, but they won't acknowledge receiving them. So we've had this problem. Jason Kenney, for example, was the MP to deal with the matter for years uh, because I happened to be in his jurisdiction. And uh, he studiously ignored the whole thing for the entire time. So it, we're dealing that with... That won't surprise those of us in Alberta who just last year had him removed as our premier. Had such high hopes for him, Leighton. I know, uh, I know. So you start to see what people are really made of when their loyalties are being tested. This has just been a really illuminating conversation, Gordon. Uh, I'm so glad that we got a chance to talk about your book. And uh, I'm going to be praying that it can it can get out into the public. Um, is there a way to do that somehow through the through the United States and to find another publishing avenue? You know, we're working on it. Uh, it is almost impossible to get removed from uh, the credit card blacklist once you're on it without a ton of money, which which I don't have. Mm -hmm. uh, the litigation that I referenced earlier on about uh, trying to get the State Department to reclassify CSA as a government agency is actually our best bet. Uh, because if we can demonstrate that the allegation is related to uh, an unfair action, uh, we can start releasing something. So that's where my focus is right now. Frankly, we've got books in a warehouse. We can't move them. And I don't know the way uh, to actually get them into people's hands uh, legally. Uh, so right now, again, the focus is on that litigation. Well, we're going for what it's worth, we're going to put Deep Six Diaries on our reading list. We have a reading list on this show. And uh, I certainly hope that at some point people will get to read it. Uh, we have one other book that is, uh, I think, perhaps more readily available. Uh, it's maybe one that you've read. Uh, it's called Permanent Record by Edward Snowden. Uh, Mr. Snowden is the man, of course, who risked everything to expose the U.S. government system of mass surveillance. Uh, he revealed for the first time the story of his life, including how he helped to build that system and what motiv motivated him to try and bring it down. In 2013, uh, not yet 30 years old, Snowden shocked the world when he broke with the American intelligence establishment and revealed that the United States government was secretly pursuing the means to collect every single phone call text message and email talk about bureaucracy the result would be an unprecedented system of mass surveillance with the ability to pry into the private lives of every person on earth and six years later snowden revealed for the first time uh how he helped to build the system and why he was moved to expose it and now uh, really uh, the the revelations that occurred back in 2013 uh to to most people are as it were small potatoes because um you know it seems that everybody is is now living in a full-blown surveillance state. Um, so that's the that's the other book besides yours that we're adding to our reading list. Gordon, are, are, can you think, uh, or would you like to add uh, any other books to our reading list for our viewers? Anything by Thomas Suttle would be a good start. Oh, yes. He's brilliant. Absolutely. You know, yeah. So much of, of, I'd tell you this as well, you know, I'm, I'm right now doing some personal reading on uh, Nazi Germany. 
and uh, specifically on the economy and how it functions, how you can survive in a police state. And that is becoming increasingly important to know how you can get by. When your accounts can be seized, when your identity can be seized, everything you say and do is recorded. Everybody's carrying these things, little yep. transponders. Yep. So they know, where you're going, they know what you're saying, they know what goes on. How do you survive in that? And it's a very important knowledge to have at this point. So anything that sort of deals in that is probably a good read to start with. That's where I'm focusing. And that's what I would advocate. Well, Gordon, uh, we thank you so much for being uh, with us here in Gray Matter. Uh, it's been a very illuminating conversation. Frankly, uh, I feel that the, the onions have been pulled back from my eyes. Uh, even after reading your book, I didn't realize the full extent of it until uh, having listened to you today and to, and to elucidate it further. So thank you so much for, for doing that. And uh, I certainly hope that uh, very soon your book will be available to the public because I, I think that uh, when it does become available, uh, more widely available, I think it's going to be a, a real blockbuster. Right? I mean, I think people are, I mean, this is right in the wheelhouse of what people are are suspecting uh, about our government, particularly with, you know, all of the corruption at the very highest levels. Uh, you know about the China interference in, in our elections and so on. Um, but I think people would be particularly shocked to know the extent of the of the domestic corruption within our own civil service. What you've told us today about how influential the civil service is, I think would be very surprising to most people who haven't read your book or listened to or, or listened to your account of it. Would you agree? I would tend to agree with all of that, Leighton. We, we've sort of discovering here as a group, as a society, that those who we think are in charge actually aren't in charge. Yeah. And those that are in charge are the ones that are ruling over us. Yeah. And as that permeates in society, uh, I think we're, we're going to be reaching a tipping point here fairly shortly where we will see some dramatic and mostly positive changes. We're very close to that. You know, people have so. been under wraps for a long time, but I, I think there's there's light at the end of the tunnel for persons like him, hopefully for persons like me, and I think all of us are headed to a brighter future. It just take a little bit longer to get there. Yeah, well, I'll be hoping for the day when you're back in Canada and I can shake your hand. But if I'm ever in Texas, I'm going to look you up. Uh, thanks again for being with us today as our special guest. It's been a real pleasure uh, having this conversation with you today on Grey Matter. Thank you so much, Lee. Real pleasure chatting with you.